Elizabeth Messer, and we're so glad you're joining us for this session and our study of the letter to the Hebrews. No one was more important to the Jews than the Old Testament hero Moses. Even though Moses had led the Jews out of slavery, he couldn't rescue them from the slavery of their sin. In lesson four, we learn why Jesus was superior to Moses and how only Jesus Christ promises us the gift of eternal life, where our hearts can finally be at rest. Thanks for listening. Father God, we just thank you for this time um, to come together be in your word, um, to talk about your son, Jesus. Lord, send your spirit now to open our ears and our eyes to hear from you. Um, Just send your spirit to move among us and to work in us. Help us to see you better because of what we read and talk about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, so we are on lesson four, if you want to open up your booklet, and I passed around the memory cards. The memory card for this week talks about a Sabbath rest, and we'll get to that part later on. These are extras. Yeah, so there's extra here if you need one. And um, today we've been, we've kind of had a slow start. Today we are going to talk about chapters three and chapters four. So it's going to move a little bit. Um, it's going to move a little bit quickly, but but you're all smart, and you will you will stay up with us. So in this section, we're talking about that Jesus is greater than Moses. So remember that we said that the author of Hebrews uses that little phrase in Greek, which means better than or superior to. He uses it over 14 times in the book of Hebrews, and this time he's talking about Jesus was even greater. Than Moses. So remember too how he talked about that the author of this book was very familiar with the Jewish people, with their story, with the um, the Torah, with all the traditions that came with the Jewish culture. So when he's talking to them about Moses, um, you'll notice that in the first little paragraph, he talks just a little bit about his story. He doesn't give you the full story of Moses because he's assuming that. Um, that the, the audience that he's writing to knows who Moses is. So who is Moses? Moses was one of the great leaders in the Old Testament, and I'm sure you remember from Sunday school days about the little baby that was born and how um, his mom was afraid that he was going to be killed, so she makes a little basket for him and puts him out on the water. His name Moses actually means out of the water, so Um, He was taken out of the waters, and he's rescued by an Egyptian princess who hears him crying and um, decides she's going to adopt him and raise him in the Egyptian palace as one of her own. But the whole time Moses knows that he's really a Hebrew, that he's, he's not really one of them. He's not really one of the Egyptians. And do you remember the part about when he grows up and he's out and he sees the Hebrews working and he sees one of the Hebrews being beaten by one of the Egyptians 
And he kind of takes matters into his own hands and he decides he's going to save this Hebrew by killing the Egyptian, right? And he's ashamed or afraid, really, so he um, tries to cover up what he's done. Um, but then what happens? He is out a few days later, and some um, of the other Hebrews bring it up. They say, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he's very, very afraid. He, he realizes that um, people know what he's done, and so he runs away to the desert, right? And I do think it's amazing when you think about Moses' story that that his heart for justice was there. Um, but the way he was trying to go about things, he was trying to kind of take things into his own hands, and he was able to save one person, right? But God wanted to use him to save a whole race of people if he was just willing to do it in God's way, in God's time, right? So that heart was already inside of him, um, and he flees to the wilderness, and he spends 40 years in the wilderness um, being humbled. Um, but I, I think it was also a time of preparation, too, a time of preparing. God calls to him from the burning bush and tells him to lead his people, and he rescues his people through the Red Sea and into the wilderness where God gives him, or through Moses, God, they receive um, the information about how to worship God through the tabernacle, and then also um, God gives Moses the law for his people. So in the mind of the Jewish people, I mean, Moses was a hero of the faith. He was a pillar of the faith. It was, you know, like Moses, you know, this, this holy name. To, so, so to say that Jesus was better than Moses, I mean, it was almost like, for them, like a blasphemous statement, like, who is better than Moses? But remember when we read, just a few weeks ago, we um, talked about the part where, um, in Mark, about the transfiguration, where Jesus took his closest disciples, and he was transfigured before him, and do you remember who was at Jesus' right and his left? Who was there with him? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was Moses and Elijah, so symbolizing all the law and the prophets. So Moses was there affirming, this is God's son. This is um, the son of God. Remember, God says, this is my son. I'm so pleased with him. And Moses was there affirming that, um, and, and we know that. So let's read. Um, we're, re we're starting in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. And um, let's see what the author has to say about Moses and Jesus. So who has that? Okay, great. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house and servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Okay, wonderful. So when you read through this passage, 
Notice the terms that are used to describe Moses in this passage and compare the words that are used to describe Jesus. In what ways are they similar and in what ways are they different? So what I want you to do right now is just work together with just two or three, two of you or three people around you. And I want you to kind of look at those first few verses and think about how is Moses described? How is Jesus described? How are they similar and how are they different? And if you can use things too that you know about Moses or Jesus outside of this passage. So just find a few people right around you and just work on that for a few minutes. Just a few more minutes. Moses. 
author, how did the author describe Moses? Faithful. He was faithful. Yeah, he was really faithful. Do you remember all of the signs where Moses got frustrated and, you know, he wanted to quit, but he was faithful. He was faithful. He, um, to the, till his, his very end. What else? How else does the author describe Moses? He was a servant. Yeah. He was a servant. He was obedient to what God wanted him to do. Remember how there were so many times in the beginning where God calls him and he tries to talk God out of it and, you know, as if that's going to work. But, um, but yeah, he was, he was a servant to what God wanted and he was obedient to what God wanted him to do. What else? Anything else? Yeah. He's the created master. Right, right. Yeah. So so he's the creation. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. He's the created. He's the creation. He's not the creator. He's not the yeah, he's not the one who's who's building things. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, about that house metaphor. Okay, good. What about Jesus? What are some of the words here? How does the author compare them? How does he describe Jesus here? Exactly. So Moses was obedient and faithful as a servant, but Jesus was faithful as a son, so he was obedient to what the Father wanted as a son. And remember how we talked about that, about the relational difference. And remember the parable about how um, God sent the servants, and then when he really wanted them to know the message, remember he sends the son to get the message. So he was faithful as a son. What else? Mm-hmm. He was a builder of the house while Moses was a part of the house. Yeah, and Moses was a servant, right? It talks about Moses was a servant in the house, and Jesus was the builder in the house. Yeah. Anything else that jumped out to you about how they're different? Jesus is given more glory. Jesus is given more glory than Moses. Yeah. Definitely. Good. Well, all of these things are good. I'm sure you talked about more um, in your group. Let's go back to the house metaphor. So, Hannah, do you want to read that again? And this time I want you to listen to this metaphor about God's house that he's talking about he's building. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was, was also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, and much more glory as the builder of a house than, um, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our 
Yeah, I love the last part in verse 6. It says, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So this thing that God is building is the church, is his body of believers that he's building. And he's using this idea of building a house. Of He's talking about that Moses was faithful as a servant, and God had a plan, and Moses was sent to kind of build this framework for the house. So remember how I talked about in the wilderness he was given the design for the tabernacle and the way that they should worship and sacrifice. And all of those things were kind of the framework to point us to what was coming, which would be Jesus. Um, So he built this foundation of the house, but it was Jesus that would be kind of the final architect. So from Moses, we get this picture of what's coming, this framework of what's coming. But it's finally fulfilled when Jesus comes as God's son. A few years ago, um, we moved my mother-in-law, my husband's mom, up to be with us, um, to live here with us. And we have an old house that was built in like 1910. And we have one of those detached garages that are in the back. And it's a two-story garage. And so we were going to make our garage into like a little carriage house, like a little mother-in-law house for her. And some of you have been to our house can see it. She's just like right out, you know, right out our little back door. There's a little pathway there. So what we decided to do is there was the footprint of the carriage house. And then the way the zoning worked, we could push it out to the back to like within six feet of our property line. So that she could, at first we thought we was going to be two story, but we pushed it out the back so that it would just all be one level for her. Um, and so we had to cut down some trees back there to build it and everything. And so in our neighborhood, people would drive by, and I call this like a, a looky-loo or, a, you know, like rubbernecking where people were like, what are they doing? You know, because you see these trees coming down because they're going to push it back. And then we had this framework that went out in the back. And you could kind of, you know, people were like, what are they doing back there? And then the final thing that really caused like traffic jam was um, the roof trussles for the second part that we were adding on in the back. So we had to have a big crane that came to lift those roof trussles onto the roof. So you just had this kind of skeleton outline of what we were doing. And then people were like, oh, they're pushing out their garage, you know, and making this roof. But there was this, they could tell we were doing something, but not quite sure. But as this framework came together, there was this picture that we were expanding that to make that, you know, place to live. And it's, it's the author saying it's the same thing that Moses was creating kind of this framework, but it was all pointing to one who would come and finish the building of the house. And then I love how he talks about it at the very end that we are his house if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast. So this family of God, this beautiful family that God is building through Jesus Christ, that he's he's building for himself. Okay, great. So the next little part is the warning. And remember that I told you the author, when he's going through the book of Hebrews, he likes, he's giving us this argument of why Jesus is so much better. Don't go back to worshiping these old ways. Worship Jesus. 
And then he gives a little warning about falling away. It's kind of like he's saying, so don't do that. Don't worship Moses. Don't go back to the old ways. This is why you should hold on to this new <coughs> teaching that Jesus brought us. And I read something in a commentary. It said, if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, that's the point. That it's supposed to. It's supposed to be like, um, because he's saying, don't do that. Don't, don't fall away. Like, don't give up what's been promised to you um, because you're being persecuted um, by others. So who has, that is Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Okay, Elise, great. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Of this war in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. For who, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Yeah, so does it make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? It's a little bit harsh. It's, it's supposed to be. He's saying, why worship Moses? Don't worship Moses when you can worship the Son of God. Um, um, and then he's talking about, there's a lot of um, reference in this about the Israelites in the wilderness. And remember how I talked about that the author was very familiar about what had happened to the Jews when they were wandering in the wilderness. In the wilderness. So what incident is he referring to? Who has numbers 14? One, two, four. Okay, great. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Yeah, so here they've just been through all of these miracles. They've witnessed all of these plagues, the way that God has rescued them. They've just come through the Red Sea, and yet they've seen all these signs and wonders, and yet their hearts are still, it's still hard for them to believe God and trust God. And so the author's saying, don't be like them that harden their hearts towards God, um, but instead put your faith, put your trust in Jesus. If you look back on this passage, Hebrews, Hebrews 3, this warning against unbelief, what are some of the words that you see that talk about a heart it's kind of hard towards God. Do you see any of the words in the passage that speak to that? 
look at part um, like around verse 12 and that section verse 12 to 15. What are some of the words that he uses to describe a, a heart that's become hard towards God? Yeah, they've rebelled. There's rebellion, so they've, they've turned away from God. Instead of trusting God and, and moving closer to him, they've, they've turned away from him. So they've rebelled. What else do you see? Unbelieving. <coughs> yeah, they're unbelieving. So even though they had just seen all these signs and wonders and miracles, they'd experienced that it still was hard for them to believe that God was going to watch out for them and take care of them. They were unbelieving. See anything else? Sin's deception. Yeah, they were deceived by sin. So um, they were hardened by sin. They were caught up in that. So that was another thing that hardened their hearts. Yeah, this, I, I read somewhere that it took one night to get the Israelites out of Egypt, and then it took 40 years to get the Egypt out of them. That it took that long, um, that day after day of daily manna and, and fresh quail and water in the wilderness and, and the pillar of fire at night and the cloud, these daily miracles that every day for 40 years is how long it took for them to realize, okay, we really can trust God. We really can believe. So, yeah, the author's talking about their hearts in this situation, how they were hard, they were rebellious, um, there were times of testing. Their hearts were always going astray. They were sinful. They were unbelieving. And, um, yeah, this idea about hardened heart. Who has Ezekiel 36, 26? Okay, can you read that for us? So listen as she reads this to, to complete this sentence. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you Yeah, so I will give you a new heart. And this is a prophecy that God is speaking through Ezekiel to his people to come. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So what, what does the author mean when he describes a heart of stone and a heart of flesh? I love that metaphor. What is he what is he talking about there? Stone like it's cold, rough, and heavy, and 
And then what did you say about the flesh, the heart of flesh? That's the heart that hears God's word yeah. and is convicted by it and yeah. turns and changes. Yeah, a heart of flesh. I wish I could give you all like a piece of Play-Doh, you know, right now. Just this heart of flesh, a heart that's moldable, teachable, that's, I think you use the word responsive. So you're responsive. You're able to hear things from God and respond to that. You're tend, your heart's tender towards God. Um, it's tender towards other people. You haven't become hardened and embittered. Um, I, have, I have this very fancy prop right here. So um, that's describing, it's talking about, it's, it's representing your heart. Okay. So, um, and... You know, for all of us, we live in a fallen world, a world that's broken and fallen. And as we go throughout our lives, all kinds of things um, happen. So we're, you know, hurt by other people. Um, Our own sin and bad choices, you know, come in and make our heart hard towards God. Um, Just things happen that because we live in a fallen world and... Um, there's illness or sickness for you or for someone in your family. Um, but this is, this is all of us because of the world that we live in. And no one can escape this. We all have wounds and disappointments and hurts um, that we go through in our life. So what happens is those places kind of build up in your heart. And there's places that are hard. Um, it's kind of just calloused. You know, you've developed like a callus because of these disappointments. Um, now, if, we, if I turn this upside down, the part that I feel like we show to the rest of the world is like this part. That's the part that we show to the world. Um, this part where we're not really open and vulnerable. And that's okay. You don't, you don't need to be open and vulnerable with everyone. And then let's say if we drew the line across this way. That would be, this part of our heart is the part that we maybe share with our closest friends that you can talk about some of those things that were hurts or wounds or disappointments um, in the past. And then down here are all these other things that are just going on in your heart that are places where you've experienced just disappointment, hurts, um, misunderstandings, And over time, if you do not bring those things to God, if you don't invite him into those places, they become hard. Um, Think about, have you ever been around someone, um, I'm thinking about like an older person, who they just have years and years of anger built up and the way um, they become just bitter and angry and resentful and that's what happens um, to your heart. It becomes this heart of stone that, like we talked about, is lifeless and dead and cold and unresponsive. And the author is saying, don't be like that. Don't harden your heart towards God. And the beautiful thing about God is that he doesn't expect us to come in and just take care of all this stuff on our own. He kind of does his own open heart surgery, right? Um, it's, I call it open heart spiritual surgery. 
And he's like a gentle doctor that works with us. And sometimes he'll kind of press on those little places. And it's like, does it hurt here? And you're like, yeah, that really hurts, you know? He gives us these invitations um, to work on those places in our heart. And so the beautiful thing about this is that he doesn't leave us this way. He gives us invitations and opportunities to come and say, let's work on that. I want to meet you in that place. Um, And it's not so much us cleaning ourselves up as it is just kind of cooperating with him and the Holy Spirit and um, the work that he's doing in our lives and and what he's inviting us into. Um, So I I hope that was helpful. And, And the reason I wanted to keep, when you find yourself in that place, this book is super helpful. He talks a lot about just kind of recognizing some emotions that you have around things, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. He kind of talks about how it's okay for Christians to have those kind of feelings. And then um, there's a whole chapter, too, talking about when you get to a place in your life, he calls it the wall. So when you come to the wall, when you can't move beyond that without God's help, there's something that's going to come up in your life that you're think that um, you're all smart people that you're you realize I, I can't think my way out of this. I can't just work harder and get over this. Um, I don't even know how to pray about this anymore. Um, so there's a whole chapter where he talks about that about what to do when you come into things um, that you. You just know, I need your help with this, God. So this, this is an excellent resource for exactly what I'm talking about there, a heart. So just remember that God's saying, I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a, I want to remove your heart of stone. Like I said, it's kind of spiritual heart surgery. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. Um, so that's what he's talking about here. Okay, so let's go on to chapter four. We're going to talk about, we have enough time to talk about a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is my favorite part of the, one of my favorite parts of the whole chapter, so I'm really excited about this. So who has Hebrews 4, 1 through 11? Okay. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let's be careful that none of us, none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua has given them rest, God will not have spoken later about another day. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests for their works, just as God did for this. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Okay, very good. So what is the author trying to emphasize in this passage? What word does he use over and over and over? Over. 
rest. Yes, he's talking about um, spiritual rest. He's emphasizing rest. So let's look at, um, so Hebrews 4.4. Well, I'm just going to read the question. It says, is it possible to rest from your own work, rest from your own strength, and still not be at rest? So tell us more. Think of a time when you rested from your work, but your heart, soul, spirit were not at rest. So let's just go back to, do you think it's possible to rest, to take a break from your work and still not be at rest? Is that possible? Yeah, you're all shaking your head. So tell me, tell me more about that. Why is that? feeling the weight of all of those burdens that you're thinking about all of those things you still have to do yeah it's hard to it's hard to lay that down isn't it we're going to talk about that yeah what else can you say any more uh-huh. it's kind of like when you're trying to sleep at night and you're like laying in your bed uh, and your eyes are closed yes. and you're like I should be asleep Yes, my body is tired, yeah. yeah, but my mind won't. Sometimes I even pray, I'm like, mind, thank you that, I thank you for my mind, and I thank you that you helped me today, but I'm done for the day, so <laughs> please, go to bed, you know, but yeah, you're just replaying things, you're replaying conversations or things like that, it's like your body, you can stop, but that's such a perfect example, your mind um, is not at rest because your mind's still thinking about things. Yeah, well, I'm going to give you more time when you're in your small group together to talk about that, like maybe a time in your life where you rested, you knew you needed to take a break from your work, but yet it still was hard to be at rest. So you can talk more about that. Um, So could you go back and read Hebrews 4, 8 through 9, just that little section, and we're we're going to talk about this idea about Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Yes, so what they're talking about here is remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were just walking and walking and walking. I mean, talk about being restless. There was no, you know, there was no purpose to it. They just felt like they were wandering. And so the day has finally arrived when Joshua is going to lead them into this promised land. But yet the author, the author here is quoting Psalms, and he's saying, they shall never enter my rest. So what he's saying, what the author is quoting in Psalms is saying, even though Joshua led these people out of the wilderness into the land that God had promised for them, they still were not at rest. And he's saying there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he's talking about a day that was to come when their hearts would be at rest too. So what he's saying here, and this is so important for your age group of people, because he's saying a place isn't going to be the thing that gives you rest. And I think it's so tempting when you're in your position to be thinking about If I just knew where I was going to live, if I just knew what job I was going to have, if I just knew 
who I was going to live with or who my friends are going to be or what my community is going to be, then I would feel at rest. And you do feel some relief, right? When you, when you know, oh, this is what I'm going to be doing or where I'm going to be living. And you do feel some relief for maybe a day or two or a week or two. But there's still that restlessness in your heart. And that's what the author's talking about. He's saying, even though these people had wandered and they finally arrived in the promised land, we know that if we look at the history of the Israelites, they're still going to have rebellion and they're going to be unsatisfied with their judges. They want a king. We want a new king. They're, they're still not happy, even though they're in the promised land. And so that's what he's saying, is he's saying the rest, the rest that God's promised isn't associated with a place. It's, it's not tied to geography. It has more to do with your hearts. It's a rest in your heart that only comes from knowing that you're saved by, by Jesus Christ. Um, and I love this quote by a wise old sage, <laughs> Professor Colin Messer. He has this little phrase. He says that he says a change of geography does not equal a change of heart. And sometimes I think that is tempting. You think, oh, if I if I just get this job, if I just move to D.C. or Atlanta or whatever your dream city is, then everything's going to fall into place, and I'm just going to feel so fulfilled and contented and at rest and peace. And we all know that that's just not true, right? But it's so easy to fall into that kind of temptation of if just these things will fall into place, I'll, I'll be at rest. And you may feel good for a while, but he's talking about that rest that comes from, I know that um, no matter what happens, that my heart's at peace because my heart's in Jesus. So think about this statement. Finish this statement. And I'm just going to give you some time to write for yourself. Finish the statement for this season in your life. If only blank, then I would be at rest. So what is that for you? How would you fill in that statement? And I'm not going to ask you to share that um, with us, but just think about that. And then prayerfully ask God to meet you in that place. Um, God, I'm struggling with this. I am struggling with this uncertainty um, or this decision or this relationship. And would you meet me there? Turn that into a little prayer and just take that back to God and say, would you be my rest? Teach me what it means, Jesus, that you're my rest instead of putting all my hope in this one thing that I think if just this one thing would happen, then I would be fulfilled and satisfied um, and complete. So who has Matthew 11, 28? Okay, you read that too. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So our rest comes not from a destination or in our circumstances, but from a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we come to him in the midst of our troubles, 
our circumstances do not change, but our perspective changes as we realize who we are and whose we are. Um, so I, I love this verse so much, and I love how Jesus says, come to me, come to me. He's inviting you, He's, it's to a person. Come to me, come to a relationship with me. Spend time with me, invest in that, and I will give you rest. Your rest will come from that, um, from your relationship with God, and not from making being in control of everything and making everything perfect in your life and making sure everything's going the way you want it to. Come to me. Um, yeah, so come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Yeah, there's there's almost this, I was thinking about this um, because of my illness that I've had since um, Christmas. So right after Christmas, I was diagnosed with mono, and... Um, you know, I wrestled with God over it because you think, oh, Lord, I have so much to do. Like, I cannot be sick right now, you know. Um, and I would tell people, I have good days and I have bad days. Like, on the bad days, I would be so frustrated and so discouraged and just really wrestling with God instead of the good days that I had were when I just accepted it for what it was, and I just kind of surrendered to it and said, well, this is the season that I'm in, and those were the days that my heart was more sensitive to God and sensitive to others, and I think that's just a metaphor for us in our lives, just thinking about the places where um, just we surrender to Him. Where do you wrestle with God over something, and where... Are you able to just kind of surrender and submit to the season that you're in? And I think that has a lot to do, too, with rest. Okay, so the author of Hebrews exhorts us to make every effort to enter that rest. At first, this seems like an oxymoron to make an effort to enter rest, but we have to realize that the world, the flesh, and especially the devil all want to keep our hearts from that place of intimacy with him, that place of rest. So what do you think about that? Does that sound like an oxymoron to you? Make every effort to enter this rest. Why is it hard to enter that rest or to receive that rest as a gift from God? Is it an effort to be at rest? Yeah, you guys are shaking your heads. What did you guys say? I think that just in our sinful nature, sometimes we, even when we know that seeking God is what will give us rest, we just don't want to do it. Right. I know that sometimes I know that if I just pull out my Bible yeah. and spend some time reading, that's the solution. Right. But sometimes I have to fight with myself to make myself do it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah, and the devil will do anything he knows that that's the place of our deepest relationship with God. That's the place of intimacy. And he will do everything he can to distract you from that, of reminding you of all these things you need to do, you know, your multiple list and um, distractions and things like that. What else? Why, why do you think it's such an effort to enter that place of rest? Mm-hmm. 
there's almost a social status in that. Yeah, absolutely. It makes us feel like it's like, wow, look how important I am. You know, my calendar's full, I'm busy, I must be a very important person. You know, so yeah, there's like a status um, addicted to that. And I think some of it, too, is this stuff that we think, we, do, we use busyness as almost like an addiction because it, it distracts us from thinking about the places that we really need to invite God in to help us with our hearts. So I think it's a way that we kind of numb ourselves to, if I'm busy, then I'm distracted and I don't have to think about those hard places in my heart. And um, yeah, good, anything else? Why, why do you think it's such an effort? So you're stopping your work, but you're not really at rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I told you all how my daughter's a freshman, and she's she's having to learn. You know, I'll talk to her and I'll say, "You've done enough. Like you need to stop. You need to stop now." And I was even thinking about this. And y'all are going to talk about Sabbath, summon your group, and how practicing Sabbath is a way to kind of practice this surrender that I'm talking about. Just saying, I, I'm going to let this go, and I'm going to trust God. But I was even thinking about how every night when you stop and you say, I've done enough for today, or, or that's, that's, that's I, there's always more that can be done, but I'm going to stop. I need to go to bed. I need to sleep. That every night you're kind of practicing that act of surrender by just trusting God what needs to be done. So. Yeah, so in your groups, we're going way over, but I'm going to give you time to talk about Sabbath, and um, and then the rest of the things. How does our perspective change when we live from a place of spiritual rest, of what really matters for your heart? And I just love this quote too from Saint Augustine that says, "You have made us for your, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you." Um, so good, let me pray for you and then I'm going to let you go or we're going to sing together first so dear God help me to find rest for my anxious heart and troubled soul in you and not in controlling my circumstances or knowing my destination today help me to receive all that you have for me in this moment quiet my heart and help me to find my rest in you alone amen you are encouraged by that message. Please join us for the following lessons and be sure to subscribe, like, and comment on this podcast Elizabeth Messer shares on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you.